welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 152nd episode, our guest is Matt Bores. Matt Bores is a nationally syndicated editorial cartoonist and editor based in Portland, Oregon. He is the founder of the comics site The Nib and previously worked at Medium. Bores was a 2012 Pulitzer Prize finalist for his political cartoons, which appear regularly in The Nation, Portland Mercury, and on Daily Coast and Foreign Policy. His work has been published by CNN, The Guardian, The Intercept, Upworthy, Village Voice, and dozens of other print and web publications. He also edited comics for NSFW Corp. magazine and Cartoon Movement. In 2012, Boers was the recipient of the Herblock Prize and the Society of Professional Journalists Sigma Delta Chi Award for his editorial cartooning. His first graphic novel, War is Boring, a collaboration with journalist David Axe, was published in 2010 by New American Library. And now on to the show. Yeah, so I am Matt Boers and a political cartoonist and editor of The Nib, which is a website for political cartoons and comics journalism. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. You're one of my favorite editorial cartoonists. You and Tom Tomorrow have always been kind of one and two, so I, I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, but uh, who were your favorite uh, cartoonists growing up, either editorial or otherwise? Oh, uh, well, I wasn't actually into any editorial cartooning for the longest time until I uh, decided to do it. Um, I've always been into comics, though, so, you know, I've when I was young, I was really into superhero stuff, and particularly image, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm 36 now, so I'm, like, the perfect age for uh, being a young boy who was into the, the image comics revolution, I was probably... 10 or 11 when uh you know spawn came out and wildcats and all that stuff so i mean all those guys were like my original inspiration for wanting to do comics at all and then as i got a little older uh i got started getting into more indie comics and underground comics um you know dan klaus was definitely a uh a big inspiration for me and and then uh, I actually did what the part of comics that I really didn't follow very closely at all is strips and editorial cartooning until I uh, wanted to do editorial cartooning uh, in the run up to the Iraq war. And then I kind of discovered this world of uh, you mentioned Tom tomorrow. He was a big influence as, as, as well as Ruben Balling and, all those guys in that uh, sort of milieu derf, and then at the time, uh, David Reese started "Get Your War On," which was a great strip. Although, oh yeah, it wasn't it wasn't drawn, but it was it was it was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, did you have any aspirations before that to do kind of more what you were talking about, what you read when you were when you were a kid type thing? Had you started any projects like that, or did you just when you started thinking about doing it seriously, you just went straight into the editorial cartooning? Yeah, uh, nothing major because I started doing editorial cartoons when I was nineteen, and then ah. you know, made so I didn't have a lot of time to um, do any kind of serious work uh in that other than you know just like comics growing up as a kid and, and everything but you know i've always i've always had I- ideas about doing stuff like that and still do really i mean if i had more time what i would really want to focus on more is um longer nonfiction cartooning which i do a little bit of for the nib when i have time uh but i mean i still have interest in doing fictional comics and, and even even superhero comics i mean I, I love all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I do see that influence in your in your style there, and, and especially when you uh, do the flash forward uh, pieces to the uh, what what it, yeah you have some kind of world that you imagine I guess for the future that you that you play certain things in, and it, it seems like it kind of has a narrative flow to it. So <laughs> yeah, well you know it um that's funny. I mean I love I love doing that stuff. So what uh what happened is. Um, I never made any characters for my comics, and mm-hmm. most most political cartoons don't at all, uh, mm-hmm. except 
you know, Tom Tomorrow has a very, you know, mm-hmm. succeeded, succeeded in doing that. But uh, I never did, you know, in retrospect, maybe it, it would have been better to um, readers love that stuff. But it just never seemed like something that fit with political cartooning. And in the last few years, I mean, things have been so, <clears throat> so hard kind of to come up with new ideas each week uh, or, or at least ones that feel interesting to me or that say anything new because, you know, you're dealing with the same kind of issues nonstop with Trump and the alt-right and, uh, you know, it just feels like we're just stuck in this endless uh, situation. So I started doing these comics that, you know, take place in a dystopian future because you, it, it's it's hard to exaggerate anything that's happening now. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, the mood is sort of that we are presently in and moving into a sort of tech-fueled climate dystopia where, you know, with the rise of nationalism around the world. So I, uh, you know, it, it's fun to draw crumbling landscapes and post-apocalyptic characters and people with cybernetic limbs and stuff, you know. And I just started jumping ahead to uh, the future where Trump is sort of in a Morton Trump from Mad Max type guy uh, <laughs> called Overlord Trump. And I mean, it, it all it actually started me and Matt Lubchansky, who uh, draws for the nib and, and, and works mm-hmm. with and stuff. We are uh, pretty close and talk about ideas constantly and riff off each other. And we both started doing this where I came up with... Um, sort of what what ended up being called the trump guard which is uh judge yeah. dread judge dread style um uh like enforcers who have uh trump hair helmets and um you know we both sort of uh build on this idea of this future timeline and especially when we were doing the animation um at first look we did some segments together that we wrote that really kind of felt like it made it a cohesive world but i i realized that one, I mean, I'm really just, uh, people seem to like it, but I'm really trying to um, keep myself interested in, like, you know, doing this after 15 years. And, uh, I mean, I, I, not that I don't love doing it, but, you know, it gets pretty exhausting kind of paying attention to the news nonstop every week for uh, a decade and a half and trying to come up with new things to say. So this kind of, keeps me really uh interested it's fun to draw and i realize it's just a lot of my influences um coming back to me you know from like x-men uh judge dread terminator mad max just i mean i guess at heart i'm really into like dystopian sci-fi stuff (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely um i was thinking about it and i think the first cartoon of yours that i really remember seeing was uh one from 2011 which was the steve jobs's new job one oh, um yeah. yeah was was that uh kind of a breakthrough moment for you uh because i kind of that was the first time you kind of appeared on my radar and i was like oh that is so good <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah that was um that was that was and remains uh one of the most popular cartoons i've ever done definitely uh-huh. at, the t- at the time it 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 became that because uh you know, it's 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 easy to forget a world with uh, without social media. But 2011 was, you know, still it wasn't early in social media, but I mean, it was like it was still almost a different world from the one that we live in now. Like I remember that blew up, I think, because of Reddit. Uh. And, um, I don't know what it translated to, you know, page view wise or something, but I mean, it, it was I think it was seen by millions of people that week, and it was just like. You know, I had people I hadn't talked to in, in, in like 10 years messaging me and being like, oh, I saw this cartoon. And, you know, I did interviews about it and stuff. And it just oh, wow. um, it just took off because it was uh, for anyone you know listening that doesn't know. One of my um, gripes with editorial cartooning is is the uh, the Obit cartoon, which, uh-huh. you know, the, the person at the Pearly Gates. Uh, saying a line from something, you know, that they their their catchphrase or something. And I mean, at this point, it's cliche because people have made fun of that stuff for a while. But when I was younger, I used to just get so mad at all the, you know, <laughs> professionals that that would just phone in these these comics every celebrity death, and I would just 
Uh, I mean, I, I remember I had like some fights with people and stuff because we all used to be on like message boards and, and I would just rip on these guys so much. And then, you know, by 2011, it seemed like everybody understood that it was cliched. And yet when Steve Jobs died, I mean, everyone is like drawing him at the pearly gates and in and, and St. Peter's swiping him in with, uh, you know, iPad and saying, oh, I love uh, love your work or whatever. And you know, God, God wants to text with you or whatever, whatever it was. Like, uh, and, then, and then I remember one of the things was that he's he's a Buddhist. And, you know, they do this with with anyone, regardless of their religion. It's like they just do this automatically. And so I uh, drew him coming up there and St. Peter says something funny and swipes him. And and Steve Jobs is like, you know, I'm a Buddhist. I don't even believe in uh, in in heaven and. And then he says, oh, well, you're a Buddhist, we can reincarnate you. And he reincarnates him into a, a line worker at... <laughs> which at the time, you know, was like really under scrutiny for people like jumping off the building mm-hmm. and killing themselves and stuff. So, um, and I mean, that's that, that kind of, uh, besides being popular, I think was successful in like my theory of editorial cartooning and why I'm so mad about obit cartoons is that you know they're just like fluff and they don't critique the person or they're not saying anything of use it's just hey like a famous person died that you know of and like here's um saint peter saying you know um <laughs> saying whatever whatever like their catchphrase <laughs> right yeah then, well yeah and then you just look at it and then you say you nod and you say, "Oh, I know that person. They, I remember that catchphrase." And then you, <laughs> that's it. And it's just like a purpose, a purposeless cartoon, a complete waste of space. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, part of my job as a newspaper editor is I have to pick the editorial cartoons for the opinion page. And and you're right. Just every time I have a syndicate that I pick from, and any time a famous person dies, I know that like half of them, it's going to be impossible for me to like pick a new cartoon for the next day because they're all going to be the same St. Peter, Burley Gates, famous person catchphrase thing. And it's like, come on, this is really, I know it's hard, but good. like, do you see each other's work at least? Like, yeah. Come on. You know, I don't know if I should go back to it because I need to wait for someone to die that's famous, I guess. But um, I did a couple other ones, like, kind of riffing off off that years later like i did uh when um what's his name fred phelps the uh uh-huh. that anti-gay uh lunatic preacher died I, I did one with him and then um uh the kalashnikov the guy who made the ak-47 <laughs> <laughs> i was like oh, i'll just make a cartoon about this and god talking about uh you know the ak-47 so um I, 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 it's been years since I did anything like that, though. But maybe, uh, maybe next time someone prominent dies, I'll do one. I know I would do if like someone really prominent died. I mean, I, Dick Cheney, I got, I, I know what I'm gonna draw. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, you can. I, I, I want to do like disrespectful obits for you know Bush and Cheney and I don't know who else, but uh, I feel like. I know what I would draw in the case of, of those people dying, but like an actual celebrity, it's just like pointless to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, another one of the first ones that kind of caught my attention of yours was when you uh, drew uh, Martin Screlly, who's actually been a guest of the Rob Burgess show before he was a guest of the state of New York. Um, <laughs> he, uh, uh, you, you drew him and then he offered to buy it and then he bumped the price up to $750. Did he ever pay you for that, by the way? Well, here's what happened. It's an interesting uh, story. I'm going to forget some details, but basically I made a cartoon about him jacking up the pill price to $750. Uh-huh. And then I must have been trying to get attention and tweeting him, tweeting it at him or something, and and he got mad, and I said something like, you know, I usually sell my original. Maybe it was I, I usually sell my originals for... 120 bucks but for you it's uh ten thousand dollars or something it was like based on the percentage that he upped the pill price and then this account this random account said i'll i'll buy it for ten thousand dollars if you you know 
donate a thousand dollars to a charity of my choice or something like that. And this is like a random, completely random account. I said, sure, PayPal me ten thousand dollars at uh, my email address. And then, like ten minutes later, ten thousand dollars arrived in my PayPal account. Whoa! I st- and then so I was tweeting about this, and so this guy wanted to remain anonymous, so I didn't, I didn't uh, publish his name right away, or I don't think I ever published his name. But I did. This is what happened: is I said, <clears throat> um, so I. Oh no no no! Here's what it was. Now now it's coming back to me. It was something to the effect of buying the comic for $1,000 and donating $9,000 to a charity of his choice. Mm. Because what happened was I said, you know, I don't want to deal with this on my taxes of having to deduct $9,000 for a charitable donation. I mean, I know that it's a write-off, but it's like that represents like a significant portion of my income. I just didn't want to deal with it. So I said, you... I'll keep the thousand. I'll return nine thousand, and then you donate it to whatever charity. I don't even know that he, if he said what what it was going to be. Mm. And uh, and so we agreed to that. But then he disappeared. So I I did ultimately make a thousand dollars, and I sold the original and I mailed it to him. Oh wow! Okay. And and then so I did some sleuthing based on uh, his name, and he's like a Wall Street guy, and had to have been uh, a friend of Screlly's or something like that. Right. Because like, it didn't make any sense otherwise. Like, I think that he, he, you know, these are guys who just have millions of dollars and don't really care. And, like, his friend buying this as a joke for him or something like that uh, <laughs> it seemed like it made the most sense. Um, so I was thinking that, you know, when when the state of New York, like, confiscated all his assets including the uh wu-tang album that he owns right that they may hold the original art i don't know <laughs> man <laughs> yeah it might have been one of those guys on that video where he was threatening uh, ghostface killer or i guess on on his webcam or whatever <laughs> so, yeah. who knows um I'm, yeah I'm talking about that it's like i can't believe that the government hasn't released the wu-tang album I know. Well, he played a little bit of it before he went to jail, right? I mean, it was kind of like just over the the whatever live streaming thing he was doing. But um, yeah, it never came out, did it? That whole that whole album. Yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you now, uh, you mentioned the nib and what's going on with it. Uh, how did just going back to the start of the nib? How did the nib start? Um, because it seemed like it was going pretty well for a long time, and yeah, I know there's been a lot of changes recently, but. Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of always been in 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 flux, or uh, there's been a couple different big moments in its life that has have has had uh, uh, near death experiences for the website. But it started in 2013. I launched it as a medium publication with funding from Medium, mm. so they were they were pumping a lot of money into publications at the time to try to get you know build up publications on their website and. I just wrote an editor there, uh, and I just said, "Hey, man, I can. I know that you're you're looking for readers, and you know what you're paying, and what kind of readership numbers you're looking for." And I said, "I can. I can do that with comics, easy." And you know, they kind of they let me, they gave me some money to uh, to test it out, essentially, and it was hugely successful. I mean, definitely. At one point, the most trafficked medium publication, um, and and then I, you know, it, it was successful enough that I ultimately got on staff at Medium, which no other, you know, outside publication had done. Uh, so it seemed really good uh, until it wasn't, which is, you know, with these tech companies, they 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 pivot on a, on a dime almost. I mean. There was all these in-house publications like Matter and QPoint. It was like a music publication and the Nib. And um, we were all funded directly from Medium, and most of the, well, the staff was Medium staff. And then uh, there was a bunch of other like third-party publications that Medium was also funding, and they just had millions basically pumping into publications. And it wasn't, I mean, they weren't making money, but also like medium had no means to make money at that time. So, uh, we were like 
I, I was always interested in starting some kind of sub subscription model or membership or Patreon or whatever uh, way for readers to support the publication because I always thought that was going to be the most realistic way to um, create something sustainable. And sort of overnight, they uh, just decided that they weren't into the in-house publications anymore, and they I mean they just completely got rid of them all. I mean, uh, and then since then, you know, they've done like three or four more major pivots, and they had they brought in big publishers again, and then they now they have sort of a subscription model, and they have they have all these in-house publications again. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know what they're doing. I haven't talked to anybody there in a while, but that's what happened with Medium. Right. Um, now, sorry, is that the same as First Look Media, or is that different? No, that was the, that was the second company. Right. Media okay. Line. So gotcha. media, So uh, the nib started in 2013, and then they pulled the plug on us in 2015, and then I uh, sort of immediately hooked up with First Look Media, which runs the Intercept. Um, and some other publications, but at the time it was mostly just the Intercept, and pitched them on, you know, just funding the nib. I mean, a similar thing, and they went for it, and it was uh, we we relaunched re in 2016, and then you know everything was good there for a couple of years, and we uh, we did this animated series, which was really fun to do, mm -hmm. and um, launched our magazine ultimately, which is great, and then. Uh, you know, then kind of a similar thing with where, you know, kind of out of the blue, just change of plans and uh, they light us off. Mm. And uh, now you're fully independent and people can support you, right, on a membership type model? Yeah, so through both of these uh, situations, I maintained ownership of the nib. And really, uh, with this time, it was... It's, I'm fortunate, really, because, you know, there was a, a business plan in place for the NIB. We had launched a magazine and a membership program, and we have thousands of people who give us, you know, between 2 and $40 a month. And so there's a, you know, the NIB is diminished now. We don't publish as much as we did at all. We publish probably half the amount of comics, but we were publishing a ton of comics, like like 20 a week for years and spending a lot of money on it. Um, so we can't quite maintain that, but I, there is a print magazine, there's daily comics and it's 100% supported by readers now. Mm -hmm. How, how I'm no, I mean, I know from, you know, I, I was the last uh, editor of Nouveau News Weekly in Indianapolis before it pulled a print publication and then now turned into a online membership, uh, thing. And so I, I do know firsthand how hard it is can do that kind of transition, uh, how have the people who support the NIB stepped up, uh, knowing that, you know, they didn't have to pay for anything before? Obviously, they don't have to pay for it now, but you're kind of asking people to, you know, find the value in it and, you know, kind of support it, what what they want to continue existing. So, yeah, well, when this first thing, when this thing first happened with First Look Media, I was not sure what the future was going to look like. And uh, once it went public, that they weren't going to fund us anymore, the... You know, we did sort of a, a campaign around it and like that we were going independent. We were still going to exist. And we we tripled our membership numbers in like two months. And that wow. that amount of revenue has really made the difference between, you know, I didn't know if we were going to be able to still publish the magazine or if we were even going to be able to pub publish daily. And now we can. Um, I think from the outside, it probably looks somewhat similar because we're publishing every day uh but you know on the inside it's 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 different because we all got laid off there was four full-time staffers and you know there's simply not enough revenue for me to hire other people right now so i'm the only person working on it full-time i have all my whole former staff is involved i mean they're basically working here and there as freelancers so you know it, it sucks like um this was their full-time job some of them for five years uh mm -hmm. so it's been a big transition and you know I'm, I'm hoping that i can grow this enough so that i can hire back uh some people eventually because i definitely could use the help but um you know i'm we're now in the the third 
I guess, the third major era of the noob, and this is going to be what it is. You know, I'm, I'm kind of willing to forgo some of the funding of new media to not have to deal with these, like, lurching strategic things. I mean, it's just so stressful and disruptive, and, um, you know, I, I have essentially had to lay off my staff twice now. I mean, I didn't, like, it wasn't me who did it, but, you know, it sucks that that happened <laughs> uh and, and, and me as well you know i mean i i, I um uh, I, i've been trying to figure out my health insurance even is, is just a, a logistical nightmare i mean it's just really hard to lose your job in this country mm-hmm. so so um anyway the point is is that you know i i the nib is a little bit smaller but i i like being independent being entirely reader funded um that may mean that it's smaller in the long term. It may, I mean, it may even mean that we, you know, go nonprofit at some point or find other sources of funding. I mean, I'm not, I'm not against um, even some sort of partnership with a another big publisher in a sense, but I just am very wary of, you know, the sort of stuff I have, I've had to deal with before. Mm-hmm. So uh, you have a new book coming out, right? Yeah, so I got a book coming out in uh, March 2020, which is my first collection of cartoons in a long time, like, since before I started The Nib, because I haven't had any time to do a book. Um, So I basically had a collection of my cartoons from the Obama era, and this is, you know, going to be a collection of cartoons from the Trump era, which I'm I'm glad to have in print, because I wasn't really considering that I'd have the time to do a book before the Trump administration is hopefully over in 2020. Um, and when I, uh, when the stuff happened with medium or first look, actually it was a little bit before they got in touch about doing a book. And when the stuff with the first look happened, I said, yeah, let's do it for sure. So it's, it's a comic publisher called Clover press, which is a new publisher. It's, uh, some of the guys from IDW like branched off to do their own their own thing, mm-hmm. and it's called "We Should Improve Society" somewhat based off of this. Well, I, I'd call it a comic, but now people call it a meme because it got really popular. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that one, uh, Mr. Gotcha guy. That's his name, right? Yeah, uh, it's just you know it started as just this one comic I did, um, and. I mean, at this point, I forget when the original publication date on it is probably 2014 or something. Mm-hmm. And it just started becoming more and more popular. And then by like 2016 or when when Trump got in, it was, you know, being used a lot. And I was like, oh, wow, this is pretty popular. It's maybe like meme status now. And then it just like kept like people kept using it. And it's like nonstop. And uh, I mean, it, it feels like it might may not even have peaked yet. Like people just still use this thing so much. It's almost annoying because I log into Twitter every day and people are like tagging me and like you know using it to respond to somebody's tweet and everything i mean it's just like people use it constantly so um i figured i would that that comic now is probably more popular than my own name or anything like that (laughs) i figured it was it would be smart to uh capitalize on the um meme status of it and use it as the title of uh my book oh it also kind of is like a perfect uh encapsulation of just um my politics in a way i mean i I, i'd consider myself on the left so i i want more than just to like somewhat improve society but you know it's like a can we just can we just settle for just something just a little bit better (laughs) right and the uh for people that don't know who mr gotcha guy is basically he's the living embodiment of a logical fallacy in which you attack your opponent not based on their argument, but that they're like what not living their argument fully, or or like like or like they're arguing for people to like do better in society, but you participate in society. You know, it's like <laughs> it's yeah. like it's, it, it seems like it has a kind of evergreen flavor to it because it's like the first thing to go to when you when you don't have like a good argument against something. It's like oh, but you, I see you doing this. <laughs> so. Yeah, and then you know it got popular enough. I didn't. Um... I didn't add, make that guy like a recurring character or anything for years. Uh-huh. Just I decided to do a sequel because 
the the one of the reasons people use it so much as like a response panel mm-hmm. is because so many conservatives especially use this logic constantly and it's like oh you know you i mean they're doing it with greta thunberg and they do it with everything aoc gets it a lot you know she got uh-huh. a hair she got a haircut it cost 60 bucks and it's like i don't know you know a woman's haircut get in color costing like 60 bucks is not as like a normal it's like new york city i mean it's like uh they're just so obsessed with you know greta thunberg's riding a train which is part of her whole thing i mean she's like against air travel and mm-hmm. and then they're like you know oh you know but you are you're using a train which consumes uh energy and it's like well you know she's not saying don't exist and exhale carbon ever or eat any food or use any product from uh that's manufactured ever but um so so i i brought the guy back for a couple uh a couple comics and even you know to incorporate the the dystopian comics i had I, I had him in the far future encountering like an old greta thunberg who has like a cybernetic arm and is like uh has like a, a gun or something <laughs> <laughs> um but uh yeah i really like that because it encapsulates so much in such a small space um but Another style of editorial cartooning does that, but in kind of a completely bonkers way, is conservative editorial cartoonists. And I'm kind of thinking of Ben Garrison here. Uh, he just he fits so much craziness and such, oh, yeah. such yeah, a small such a small space. And it's like I want to be mad at this, but I'm kind of just in awe of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, no, he's incredible. And actually, what is interesting about his story is that he used to be. He's always been kind of a weirdo libertarian cartoonist and one of these guys who is just in this kind of C-list tier of um, editorial cartoonists where they're like an adult man who doesn't isn't actually published anywhere, but is like devoted to producing editorial cartoons all the time for some reason. And so he used to just be like nobody. And then like 4chan, I mean, I think it was 4chan, but it was like, like it basically internet trolls started making his comics like anti-semitic and um he got furious you know and he threatened to sue people and um we actually did a piece at the nib years ago about this because Mm -hmm. like before he became ben garrison as he's known now and he uh so it was kind of like the the people who are into like pepe memes and shit Mm -hmm. with uh would do this uh, but this was before pepe and then when trump happened he just became this alt-right pepe loving like conspiracy monger and really just pandering to this crowd so intensely you know doing comics about hillary and pizzagate i mean just like over the top stuff it's it's just like hilarious to read because it's so it's so patently ridiculous and he draws in like the uh it's like a a fake old school editorial cartoon with all these labels and except the labels are like pizzagate like occultism and like you know all this weird and then i was actually looking i was rereading watchmen because everybody's talking about watchmen now Uh and uh, in the back matter there is this dave gibbons did a fake right-wing editorial cartoon that's like in the new frontiersman which is a right-wing paper that rorschach reads and uh it's like a ben it looks like a ben garrison cartoon it's just like all like over the top uh, like there's like a mafioso and there's like this like rate like a racist depiction of a black lady like selling reefer and like it's just, <laughs> it's like it's so wonderful yeah yeah, I love how I love how he like over explains things with labels too. Like it's like, okay, I think you could have explained this just through the drawing, but it's like here and here. Like, you know, it's just just so over the top with it. I love it. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Oh yeah, and um, uh, no, he's he's great, and he uh, he's kind of like he he doesn't seem self-aware, which is like kind of what's funny about it. Like, uh-huh. he he could. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think in a way he's like consciously pandering to the alt right, and that's where he's found his like basically his only success as an artist. Um, 
so I think he's kind of authentic in the sense that he's not. He's kind of like a grifter, just like all these guys who have like attached themselves to Trump, like Mike Cernovich and whatever. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're just sort of guys who would never succeed professionally until they were like selling um, MAGA chuds, like books about how your gorilla mindset will help your like help you in the bedroom or something. Like he's just one of those guys. Like I think that he like the line is like Trump really, and like the line between whether they believe it or whether they're grifting is just sort of non-existent because it's just all part of the same. It's all part of the same thing. Like they like he's just a dumb guy. He doesn't have any anything interesting to say. Bad thinker, bad at politics, but you know has found success with this crowd and like that's that's affirming to him like he just you know you couldn't you couldn't convince him otherwise yeah absolutely well it kind of reminds me of it's not an editorial cartoonist but the uh the painter is it jim mcnaughton that guy that (laughs) draw yeah (laughs) yeah there's yeah he has he has a very busy canvas as well like like there's always a lot going on in 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 his work it's like there's an eagle crying and obama stepping on the constitution and george washington's like head in his hands it's like why this is actually technically like you're you're doing some interesting things here but it's like i can't imagine just spending so much time on something so insane oh yeah no it's just (laughs) awful i mean the you know the 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 art that would exist under fascism. I mean, this is a, this this is a glimpse of like, right? You know, <laughs> what would happen if if more people were into this and they were able to like, I I I, I don't know that they're going to win the next election, but it's you know if um if they somehow were able to and they were able to like culturally succeed or something. This is this is the type of stuff they want to produce. Like this is the type of stuff they want to hail and celebrate. And and uh, this is what they will fund under the, the the fascist you know overlord Trump in my dystopia. It's like there's there's just an art gallery with uh, John McNaughton and Ben Garrison cartoons. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned the cartoons, the the animated cartoons. I really enjoyed those. Uh, is there any plans to bring those back sometime in the future? No plans because uh, animation is quite expensive. Um, that was definitely one of the things that was. You know, done under the auspices of working for a new media company that was willing to fund it. Um, what the the deal with those was, we we kind of had a, well, we had a ton of control over it, and we were just kind of allowed to do just about whatever we wanted. And so we wrote and storyboarded all these things. And Augenblick Studios, a really good animation studio in New York, uh, made them move and made them talk. And it was for it was the nib, but it was for this thing called Topic, which is a website that First Look also funds, and mm. they produce a lot of video and mostly not animated. But um, the you know the idea was that this could maybe be uh, a web series or it could be sold to a streaming company. We kind of uh, tried a bunch of different things. I mean, they were really just produced to grow audience for Topic ultimately, and we we tried to. Um, approach some streaming services with doing something like a different version of it or a longer version of it or whatever. And it just didn't, didn't happen. Um, and so that was like, you know, I mean, it was fun to do and I wish the, uh, a bigger deal had happened because it was, you know, had the, with the streaming services, you have the potential to actually make a lot of money and it could have underwritten the nib. But I, as fun as animation is, I mean, I like, comics and want to do comics and they're also easier to produce uh than animation which is just an extraordinarily time-consuming thing that involves multiple people with multiple skill sets and um you know i don't i don't know that i'm gonna i mean i don't want to say never because it was like super fun to do but it's 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 hard to sell stuff like that you know Hmm. even something successful like uh tuca and birdie was just canceled by netflix you know and Mm -hmm. that's not that's not political cartoons, obviously, but like, it, it's just a lot. It, it's a lot harder to to get stuff like that made. Mm-hmm. Um, creatively, though, it seems like there is somewhat of a tension between people that are primarily just cartoonists, and then their uh, work gets taken to the animated realm. Uh, did you ever see? I used to read The Far Side all the time. Did you ever see those cartoons, those animated cartoons they made of The Far Side? No, have I mean. 
I don't even uh, they're what? like I'll I'll send you a link to them, but they they were like in the '90s, and they were like I think it was some French. It, there was no dialogue in any of them, uh, but it was like animated like vignettes of like Far Side cartoons. I thought that was really cool. And then I know that I used to read Calvin and Hobbes all the time too, and I know that he famously never wanted to. Uh, license it for anything but then of course calvin was like peeing on a thousand <laughs> at back of a, a thousands of yeah. trucks anyway but um but yeah i don't know and you know with tom tomorrow you mentioned him we mentioned him before and he had a, a animation thing back i think it was in the 90s as well or maybe it was in the 2000s but uh i, I like it i th- as a consumer of it i i think it's fun when it's something i like it's translated like that but i understand if you're like a creator you know if, if you don't have total control or if you like it in one medium or you know it's just a lot of work it's it seems like it can go awry or not be what you'd want it to be possibly but yeah i think i mean it's fun if a, if, a, if a deal happened with the nib animation thing again i mean i would do it it was like it was so fun to work more collaboratively with uh with a bunch of cartoonists like i would write stuff and then you know have someone else draw the thing or me and matt lachansky often would write a script and one of us would draw it or you know someone else would draw it entirely uh you know there's a reason why a lot of people get into movies and animation and don't stick with comics necessarily because there's not a lot of money in comics i mean it's extremely hard to make a living as a full-time cartoonist um Mm -hmm. so you know i mean someone like lisa hannawalt she came up because of Tuca and Birdie, and she worked on BoJack Horseman. I mean, she still does some comics, and they're great. But, like, her primary income source is clearly, like, you know, has been Netflix shows. I mean, it's just Mm -hmm. when you're presented with that opportunity, you take it because that's your ticket to, like, make a decent living. And and, uh, so I think on the one hand, I fully support, you know, artists going and doing animation with their projects or movies with their projects. I would want to do it to in order to facilitate myself doing more comics. Like, mm. you know, I'm I would be uh, I'm like the I would want to be like Alan Moore. You know, just not that not that I don't I wouldn't care about how they come out, but just like it would just be it's just about money getting money so that I could like do do my pro my own project. You know, mm-hmm. so right. yeah, uh, I'm not like opposed to and I mean animation and movies are great, but with all the I, I'd much rather read comics, honestly, and, and do comics myself. So, mm-hmm. you know, my whole I I love what I do, but I don't even have a lot of time to do comics myself. I mean, it may look that way if you're reading like a comic I do a week, but that's just that represents like one one night of cartooning. Like, you know, I, I have no ability to put out like a graphic novel, which is something that I'd I'd love to do. So like if, you know, if I could do some sort of movie deal and get enough money to like take a year off to draw a book i mean that you know that's why i'd want to do that not really for the uh the end product of something being a movie right definitely um what would you say to younger people who are wanting to do editorial cartooning obviously the media landscape is what it is but you know if if somebody has that's their passion what would you tell them well, pitch me. I mean, you know, <laughs> I feel like uh, one of the reasons I created the nib is to make a a permanent space for some of this stuff, and a, and a publication that's devoted to it entirely, as opposed to as opposed to you know publications that barely make any space whatsoever for any kind of comics. Um, yeah, advice now is even you know it's even harder than when I was coming up, which was at the very very tail end of like all weeklies existing and. I think I, I still run in one, uh, but uh, that was no longer a viable path. And unfortunately, a lot of websites don't run this stuff. Like it just wasn't part of their formulation and it never became a normal thing. So unfortunately, I, I don't really see anyone doing it full time anymore. I mean, I run a younger crowd of cartoonists like... Chelsea Saunders, Niccolo Pizarro, Kendra Wells, people in their 20s who like do some political cartoons, but I'm not sure if they weren't doing it for me if they'd be doing it anywhere because there's not really uh, a lot of places giving them that opportunity. So, I mean, I I would just say, you know, unfortunately, you probably just got to publish work and get it out there and try to build up a following. And then from there, you got to try to leverage that into 
getting someone to pay you to do it, which is a publication. And I think you got to, you know, there's a lot of publications out there that aren't running political comics and should. And so there's an opportunity to um, convince them to do it. Uh, not saying that that's easy, but, um, you know, there's really even a dearth of people doing this at all anymore. So there's not a lot of people to choose from. So, I mean, it's like, if you can find the right editor that's willing to uh, give you a shot, um, you know that that's that's what you got to do. Unfortunately, I think that's a lot harder than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, well, on that happy note, uh, I uh, always ask people before we go, "What music have you been listening to lately?" What music have I been listening to lately? Man. Um, all kinds of stuff. Uh, there's this woman, Marika Hackman, who's like, um, I don't know how you describe her, singer, songwriter, rock rock artist or something. She's she's really great. I just uh, saw her live. Her new album is really good. Her last album was really good. I love her. Um, I've been listening to a lot of jazz, too. This guy, uh, Micaiah McRaven, is really great. Um, those are two things that I've been listening to. So not the new Kanye uh, gospel album? I listened to it. I used to. I was. I was big on Kanye all the Me way too. through. Me too. Me <laughs> too. Jesus, I thought was great. I mean, I was. I was. I was hard into Kanye for a long time. Uh, the last album was just absolutely atrocious. I hate it. Um, and the new one, it has flashes of stuff that is like pretty interesting and sounds cool. But I mean. Uh, I don't, yeah, Kanye sucks now, unfortunately. I mean, he definitely sucks, like, politically, and his, and he, he's always been, like, obnoxious and egocentric, but, like, in the last few years, he's just, like, like on another level. You can barely stand him at all. And aligning with Trump was just, like, despicable. This album, I mean, I can divorce myself from that to, like, listen to music, but uh, I'm not super into it, no. <laughs> Mm-mm. Okay. I've been too scared because I was in the same boat. I used to love Kanye, and, and I don't know. I can't tell if I just have soured on him artistically or personally, or maybe it's just a mix of both, but I just, it's, 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 a, hard, it's a hard pill to take. But Yeah, well, I find the whole, uh, you know, there's like a song with Clips and Kenny G on it, which I think is actually, wow. it's a good song, and um, the whole gospel conceit is, is, the music itself is not necessarily bad, but it's hard to uh, it's hard to swallow for me because it's like he's he's just sort of stumbled across, you know, yet another idea that he's like thrown himself into fully and like turned into some like um, egocentric thing now where he's like, you know, he's he's close with God. He said something about God gave him a God gave him. He thanks God for his tax cut. And it's just like, you know, I he's not really religious. He's just his religion is what itself. <laughs> <laughs> so I think yeah. the whole thing's a big tribe. <laughs> yeah. It certainly seems that way. Um well hey, I've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, I really appreciate you uh taking the time to talk and uh I'll be looking out for whatever you do. People should definitely support the nib. I enjoy it greatly. Uh, I always share uh stuff when I see it come across any social media I follow, so yeah. All right, well thanks for coming. Cool. Uh well have a good rest of your day. All right, you too. Later. Thanks a lot.
Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.